The human body is a super system of trillions of cells working together to keep us alive. Like any piece of complicated machinery, there are an entire spectrum of ways in which the system malfunctions. The German Pharmaceutical Trade Association estimates there are over 30,000 known diseases, with new ones being identified every year. Some of them you've heard of before, but others are so rare or underserved, you or someone close to you might have it and not even know. It's time to change that. Hello, I'm Nick Scipione, and on this episode of Brainwaves, we're using our resources to shine a light on one of the lesser-known afflictions. For this podcast, we're kicking things off with a disorder that was so underground, it didn't even have a proper name until 2019. But I bet, if you asked your friends and family, it wouldn't take long to find someone who has it. It's that frog in your throat, that bubble in your gut. It might seem benign to the lucky ones who escaped its wrath, but trust me when I say, you'd rather be in an iron lung than suffer through this. Get ready as we descend into the bloated world of no burp. Burping is an ordinary, disgusting habit because you're all ordinary, disgusting people. Healthy individuals pass gas between 12 to 25 times a day. Many animals, not just humans, expel these gases out of the entrance to their digestive tract in what is called a burp, bulk, belch, gurk, or eructation. People who can't burp have what scientists call retrograde cricopharyngeous dysfunction, or RCPD. Personally, I would have went with eructile dysfunction. Now, you'd think that with all the defective humans throughout history and all the doctors, one would have latched onto this a bit sooner. But actually, the first journal to identify the condition was just published in 2019 by Dr. Robert W. Bastian, a throat specialist that has made more people gag than Johnny Sins. He identified the cause of no burp to be an inability to relax the sphincter in the upper esophagus to release gas. Instead, these gases slip out as amphibious croaks. People who have RCPD experience nearly constant gurgling, like an old mini-fridge, making physical intimacy difficult to maintain. To make matters worse, if the exceptional flatus doesn't gurgle out, it will have to make a backdoor escape. In Dr. Bastian's first paper, one young woman is quoted saying, Everywhere I go, I scan my surroundings for a private place to go briefly to release gas. These people are unable to drink carbonated beverages like beer or soda. They are forced to seek companionship on the internet, where they will inevitably stumble across the island of lepers that will provide them with a sense of community, r slash noburp. Here, they trade stories of their experiences of becoming so bloated they actually vomit air. Through this community, they don't feel so alone anymore and make memes about their sorry condition. So what can people do? Well, there have been some exercises created to teach people how to take control of the muscles around the UES. The other option is actually quite safe and reliable. In the same paper where Dr. Bastian names the disease, he also establishes the cure. By injecting a small amount of Botox into the muscle, the sphincter relaxes and people start burping in a matter of days. Out of 200 patients, 80% have gained the ability to burp even six months after the treatment, describing the whole experience as life-changing. To get a little more detail, I went and reached out to esteemed plastic surgeon Dr. John Monoli. His history with Dr. Bastian, as well as being named a top doctor five times by Las Vegas Magazine, will provide special insight into the condition known as RCPD. Let's go to that interview now. Dr. John? Good evening, Nicholas. I'm Dr. John Monoli. I specialize in plastic and reconstructive surgery, but I have had experience with the larynx, the voice, surgery around those regions, and specifically the cricopharyngeal area. To start, can you please describe your job for the listeners? And what are your most sought-after operations 
Oh, sure. Yeah. My my current daily practice is essentially in the field of um, aesthetic surgery of the face and the body. The types of procedures that are common to that are in such format as facelifts and nose jobs and breast augmentation with breast implants and tummy tucks and liposuction. But uh, during the course of my training to understand and learn about the anatomy involved with those types of procedures, I spent a lot of time in the head and neck. Now I come to find that there's uh, an entity that's been described recently, retrograde uh, cricopharyngeal dysfunction, which, and that happens in the throat just below the Adam's apple. Now that uh, Dr. Robert Bastian has defined in the region of the cricopharyngeal musculature, and uh, he discusses his first treatment of such a patient, where he surmised after the host of symptoms that the patient was having that there was some dysfunction uh, around or within the cricopharyngeus musculature. He recognized that the sphincter was dysfunctional. It wasn't relaxing as it should. It wasn't allowing a retrograde belch of air after one swallows, after deglutition. There should be a retrograde belch of air that's just part of the process of eating. Unfortunately, these patients who suffer from this cannot have air go where it should go to express itself back again through the esophagus in the form of a burp. And so it winds its way over several hours and maybe even several days before it finds its logical terminus the other end of things and so these patients have flatulence you know excessively or at least some do distress within the chest feeling that air cannot express itself a bloating within the stomach i'm just becoming aware of so dr bastian surmised that this condition exists because the sphincter couldn't relax the the sphincter uncorks to get the food down why is it an uncork on the way back up to get the air out it makes sense to me that this is the first clinical foray into treatment of a condition that's not formally recognized, one would want to use something that might wear off, something that's not permanent, at least to prove the theory. And in fact, Botox is a neuromodulator which uh, wears off over time and has been used in the throat for another condition above the cricopharyngeus within the voice box itself at the level of the vocalis muscles, vocal muscle, the vocal cords, condition known as spastic dysphonia, and if I recollect correctly, uh, during the 1980s, Dr. Bastian, the original pioneers to begin to treat spastic dysphonia with the neuromodular Botox as well. Of course, Botox was in no way, shape, or form recognized as uh, the popular drug that it is today. It was more a drug that was discussed in laboratory, in medical schools. The public had no real common awareness of it. That only came later. In fact, the cosmetic uses of uh, Botox were only recognized after uh, its clinical application in the head and the neck, as I just referenced, Dr. Bastian's uh, treatment of spastic dysphonia. And uh, I don't know if Dr. Bastian treated such conditions, but there were other conditions known as blepharospasm, twitchy eyelids. You, you listeners may know of someone who has a, a nervous twitch around the eye. Well, that was treated back in the 1980s in a clinically experimental way, 
with Botox. Let's relax these muscles and see what will happen. Maybe the spastic condition will go away. Serendipitously, it was discovered that the forehead was very smooth after treatment, so people got the idea this could be used for cosmetic purposes, and so that's really a short story about Botox and its different uses. So as Dr. Bastian surmised, made sense that it would just slip down to another muscle. And in fact, his hypothesis was correct. The condition was relieved in this particular patient. And then patient, unbeknownst to Dr. Bastian, as I understand, uh, reported this online. It sort of went viral. Dr. Bastian only found out later that he had discovered and uncovered a condition and actually now... Uh, uh, has uh, is leading the way to help relieve a lot of sufferers who didn't know there was a solution. That was a wonderful history lesson on Botox. I really appreciate that. I would love to ask you if there are any other uses for Botox that people might not be aware of. You know, medicine's a fascinating field. Surgery medicine, uh, they're referred to as the healing arts. So it's not just science, it's a branch of the arts. One can see throughout history that Things that come from nature, one way or another, applied to the human condition, and voila, turns out that it was therapeutic. You trace it further, it becomes a medication that comes in pill form and is sold in bottles and convenience stores. But the truth is, a lot of them are botanicals that first came from nature. But it turns out that Botox and its competitors, they are neuromodulators. They modulate a message that a nerve sends to end organ. In the case of what we've been discussing, Botox for cosmetic purposes or spastic dysphonia or spastic muscles, the end organ is a muscle. But nerves stimulate things other than muscles. They stimulate different organs. They stimulate, for example, sweat glands. Sweat glands are end organs, ecrines. People can have socially embarrassing conditions excessive sweating. Sweaty palms, sweaty armpits, stains on nice white linen shirts so embarrassing to raise your arms at a picnic and find only to find that you've got a stain from excessive sweating known as hyperhidrosis. So uh, clinicians and investigators realized, well, there is a material, Botox, or a neuromodulator, that cancels the effect of a nerve stimulus of an end organ. At first, it was the end organ was a muscle, but why not the ecrine gland? We're not the sweat. So, in fact, hyperhidrosis, excessive sweating, socially embarrassing sweating underneath the armpits can be and is treated with uh, the application of neuromodulator injections, Botox injections. And I, in fact, in my practice, side practice, I do treat some patients for hyperhidrosis or excessive sweating. Uh, there are some of my colleagues in plastic surgery who are very adept with neuromodulators, and they actually will use neuromodulators to relax muscles at the base of the skull and in various regions of the side and back of the neck uh, as they impinge on the thorax, only to find that uh, neuromodulators can relax key areas that are the source of tension headaches. So Botox and other neuromodulators have been used for headache relief in some cases. can't be used just indiscriminately. Headaches have to be diagnosed. The origin of a headache. Is the headache a tension headache? Is it a headache a migranous headache? Is it a sinus-related headache? But for those tension-related muscular headaches at the base of the skull and within the neck, neuromodulators have proved therapeutic. So that's just myriad applications of Botox other than 
uh, its most pop use for cosmetic purposes. Could you briefly mention the gynecological application? Oh, we were referring to a gynecological application of neuromodulator injection within the vagina along the anterior uh, wall of the vaginal canal. Some would refer to this region, erogenous G-spot zone. I have not treated this. I have only heard and read about this, but apparently some of gynecology colleagues are very adept at uh, treating patients who have problems of sexual dysfunction and prove through application of a neuromodulator the highly sensitive area within the vaginal canal. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Now, so many of these conditions you describe are not formally recognized. And in the case of no burp, the first paper was published in 2019. Why do certain conditions go so long without being formally pointed out by the medical community? That's a fascinating question, I guess. Uh, how does time march on? What is progress? <laughs> what is regress? When does the light bulb go on. What does it take an adolescent 15-year-old to imagine what it's like for a train to go fast and then really fast and then really fast and then the 15-year-old has an epiphanal moment that no one has had before and discovers that the E equals MC squared. And that's just because, you know, it comes into the human mind somewhere. Are we going to ever cure cancer? Well, some cancers are readily treated and cured, others not. Subdivisions of disease processes and we march along and have ebbs and flows and progress and we recognize things and then we discover them and then we find out as clinicians that maybe we were wrong about this or that and we we grow on the shoulders of our predecessors it's so important i feel i've seen progress of medicine and therapy for human suffering that we must remember history at least the history of medicine and medical and surgical techniques because they're built upon generation and generation and generation. They're written about. Before they were even written about, I'm sure they were even talked. Passage of information was part of many cultures. Passage of information through the oral tradition. So um, why now this condition finally discovered? Fascinating. It takes a certain individual. I have to say, I mean, I, I met Dr. Bastian. That's an interesting story in itself. I met Dr. Bastian in 1984, part of my own professional journey. I was interested in the ear, nose, and throat, and vocal production, and singing, and medicine. And I came to interview at a surgical program in St. Louis. So happened that Dr. Bastian was one of my interviewers. I'm happy to report that I was accepted to his program. He left for Chicago, has established so much good work in Chicago. I believe he left in the 1980s. But I remember meeting him, and I remember the legacy he left regarding specialized care of the, the larynx, the throat, the voice box, even more so than other practitioners of that art form were doing of the day. He had a special gift and understanding of that region, maybe because he understood anatomy and maybe because he liked to sing himself. So the two merged. And then his imagination arose. He recognized certain things that other people maybe didn't recognize. Maybe they were looking at things and didn't know what they were looking at. But with his special combination of skills and insight and life experience, his light bulb went on. Ha! Combine that with the internet, message boards that didn't exist, you know, 
three generations ago, two generations. And there again, voila, the combination of individual intellect, curiosity, and really brilliance combined with the information capabilities that we have for sharing information today. And, and that just catapulted, and apparently it's gained some viral life of its own. Indeed, it really has. Part of the reason we're only hearing about this now is because people have reported that in the past, when they complained about not being able to burp to doctors, many were faced with, with skepticism and not taken seriously. So what is your opinion on skepticism of patients by doctors? Well, I, I would answer that by just not necessarily uh, specifying patients or doctors specifically, but discussing the issue of skepticism in the field of medicine and the healing arts in general. Skepticism, healthy skepticism, unhealthy skepticism, new advances, new advances accepted in certain quarters and new advances thought to be heresy in almost medieval practice in other quarters. The very um, origin of modern vaccinations in country, town, and England by Dr. Jesnu uh, recognized there may be some capability through cowpox to transfer immunity to humans and protect them from the deadly scourge of smallpox that was part of his day, part of his country practice, considered his practice before he proved it to the world, heresy, to witchcraft, and look where we are now. Still controversy about vaccines, but smallpox was erratic in all corners of the world. Polio is another example. Deadly disease, a horrible disease that does control use of various vaccinations. So that's just one example of medicine advances and skepticism. Um, and I dare say other conditions, you see, huh, the obvious Doctors are humans, too, with their frailties and their limitations. They're taught certain things, and they have experience, and they practice, but sometimes they don't see all. I believe that they're good practitioners. Uh, they have their own sense of healthy self-inquiry. Why don't I understand this? What, uh, what may I be missing? It is true that people do have psychosomatic conditions, but a lot are not. A lot may have symptoms of different sorts. We happen to be talking about grade cricopharyngeal dysfunction, but something else. Could have been sinus disease back in the late 60s, early 70s. Doctors are not used to seeing that complex of symptoms. A condition has not been recognized yet. And they don't quite know what to do with it. So they'll scratch looking for an answer, and sometimes they'll just figure there may be some psychosomatic condition. That is True for certain conditions and for certain people. In fact, here, here's a perfect example where there's a group of people looking for answers who actually do have something that's, that's very real. That's just an amazing story, the recognition of something and what to do for it. Now, we were talking about how doctors are part of their own communities, too. In those communities, there are ideas that are popular and others that are not so much. What is your opinion on freedom of expression in the scientific community? I'm for it. Um, for free expression of ideas, um, that is the scientific way. Testing, retesting, trial and error, looking at all possibilities. I think it's dangerous for a scientific community to start to censor itself. There's always been internal methods of uh, rigor involving the examination of scientific material that is, is introduced to the scientific community. 
Does it pass muster? But when things do pass muster and then they're squelched, as uh, may be happening today in scientific and medical communities more than to think, fortunately, that is regressive not progress. In centuries of great advance with the application of the scientific me- method, not the censored scientific method. I would recollect Galileo, considered a heretic. Oh, the earth revolves around the sun. No, that that cannot be so. And so he was cast out. His scientific method, his scientific inquiry was not accepted. We know today that he was correct. His death, his final words, it still moves. Nothing that the other human beings around him could say took away from the fact that the earth was revolving around the sun. Inquiry is good. Good scientific, healthy debate is good. I think that, I I hope that continues within our scientific communities. It should lead to more advances in the healthy environments of understanding what we can do to help people further for other conditions or even advance the cause of this condition and find its treatment and disseminate the message to other practitioners who have the capabilities within their clinics to actually do this. They just need to be educated as well. I can just imagine what it must be like not to get the relief of a belch after a good meal. Great. And last question. I understand that one of your purposes as a doctor is to heal when it comes to plastic surgery. How does how one sees themselves affect their mental or physical health and are they connected they're very much connected i I dare say that the the separation of those two entities the treatment of a patient just strictly on physical means for contour improvements without recognizing there's a spark of life behind the surface contours their joys and sorrows uh, their motivations there's so many things the use of surgical techniques and other related techniques to enhance one's appearance, I mean, that's scientific. That is that is surgery, by definition. But the treatment, I think, goes a lot deeper. Treatment penetrates to some place that is the same place that one feels relief symptoms when they have an appendicitis cured by removal, surgical removal of an appendix. That same place where the anxiety is removed because some physical condition is improved. There are so many examples I've seen, you know, really personality improvements in ways, uh, a sense of joy that comes after the physical transformation. There's a definite connection of mind and body. And in fact, as a practitioner, I have to be aware of how far that psychological component goes. There's a very real entity known as body dysmorphic syndrome. A number of people in our society are disturbed. They can't quite see themselves, their physical selves, in realistic terms. They see what others don't. In fact, they may see a distorted version of themselves in a way that others don't. And yet they come to a surgeon looking for an answer, and the answer is not outside. It's inside. It's the prism their own self-reflection what do they see we're all that way to some degree so part of treatment is determining who can be helped and who can't be helped by these particular techniques very much a part of my my role and responsibility is not just to be able to physically perform an operation in a proper manner with good dexterity and good manual execution but on whom and for what i dare say that our society has become so much more complex that 
it provokes stresses for so many. Some of us try to hide them and, oh, we, we handle it all. We're, we're above it all or we've got it under control. But the stresses are there and they work on different parts of the brain and the psyche. Some of the anxieties that one feels about physical forms. There's relief that I've seen that can come from carefully, responsibly, safely doing that in a surgical manner. But I'm always looking at the behind the behind. How is it helping this person? What? How is it impacting their psyche? Can I do this? Is this realistic pose or not? So there's definitely psychophysical surgical aspects of aesthetic surgery. I like that. The behind the behind. Well, I appreciate talking to you, Dr. John. It is my pleasure, distinctly. And you have a good evening. This episode of WRBV's Brainwaves was hosted by me, Nick Scipione. This recording wouldn't be possible without the help of Caleb Dreisman, our podcast director, and Andrew Sendry, WRBV's general manager. This episode of Brainwaves was mixed and edited by our audio engineers. Special thanks to the WRBV leadership staff, Northeastern University, and Northeastern Student Activity Fee for funding this podcast. Our theme music is W by Mari Getty. Head to wrbvradio.org where you can find the latest episodes of all our podcasts. Listen to our internet live stream and read up on the latest music reviews. And make sure to follow us on all social media at WRBV Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.